open your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 15 as we uh, get back into the study of what we've been, been doing the last uh, few months as we are studying how God changed the world through a group of people, a disciples, and you see a disciple community start and move from one city to another, and now it's starting to really reach to many nations uh, across uh, across borders and ethnic divides, uh, and you have some of the consequences of that that's uh, difficult in Acts 15. I, I grew up, my dad's a pastor, and so I grew up going to church, and as a pastor's son, I didn't just go on Sunday mornings, I went on Sunday nights, um, and then Wednesday nights, and then Monday we had visiting, and then dad would take me a lot, and I kind of, I really did grow up in the church community. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Uh, one of the things that I was quickly familiar with was the, the monthly business meeting. And that was actually more entertaining for me as an eight-year-old boy. Because inevitably somebody would get mad. And an eight-year-old boy likes nothing more than a little drama to watch. Because you know, he usually gets kind of dull. Uh, and then someone gets mad. And like, wow, there's something happened there. Of course, Dad had a different take on it. Uh, but, you know, and then I remember there was always one man that seemed like every meeting he would come up and he would start with a date. And he usually would say something like, in 1957, this church, and he would give some history lesson. And it always had some negative consequence to what was happening at the time. And then, if that was enough, that that I would I needed to be further educated to the church at a larger scene. And so every summer we would go to the Southern Baptist Convention, which was amazing to watch. Thousands of people operate by Robert Rules of Order. Um, it was incredible to witness. But in 1979 through the 80s, it was exciting. <laughs> for a 10-year-old little boy to watch because there are all kinds of people getting angry at one another. I mean, really angry at one another. Nothing like a few thousand Baptists to try to make a decision. Uh, and so here we are. And, and, and after all that era of the 80s and 90s, and people realize, you know, is that really what the church is about? Interesting enough, Folks start dropping off uh, in churches because they don't want to be about those struggles. And so in Acts chapter 15, it somewhat encouraged me to me as I read that there was dissension that was happening in the early church. But it's even more encouraging and instructive to see how it was dealt with. And so it's helpful to know that even those who witnessed Jesus, walked with Jesus in his resurrection, who, in, who experienced Pentecost itself, to know what it was like to have the Spirit of God in them so much so that they could speak in different languages, and that they saw miracles, they saw people resurrected, they see the lame walking again, and they're seeing the power of God going throughout the, throughout the country and the nations, and even them, they sometimes do not see eye to eye. And I tell you, there are a few things that rival people disagreeing about God. 
Have you ever been there? It doesn't take much. You don't have to be in church to experience this. You start talking about God, and people get extremely passionate and consequently angry. This is how wars start. Alright? So, all that to be said, let's look and see how did God intervene? How did the people of God seek to deal with this situation uh, of a dissension uh, that could have been destructive to the forward momentum of the church? So, Acts chapter 15, uh, this being the word of God, we ask that we stand as we read this together. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate within them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no, no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they were. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the temple of the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. But it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. So, so we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and trouble you with words and settle in your mind, although we gave them no instructions. It seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. You abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of this encouragement. You may be seated. So, I want to first talk about how a solution was made, and then let's talk about the solution itself. So what's the problem? Well, you see this right in the very beginning in verses uh, 1. The problem. Men came and started teaching something a little bit different than the fact that you are saved by the grace of God through faith. They simply said, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, men, if you're not circumcised, circumcised at birth, and this became the requirement to join the church, you can see how quickly it became a serious matter. Alright? Uh, so, you probably had a lot of women saying, okay, no, no problem. And the men were saying, wait a second. Uh, they're saying some stuff that, that's pretty serious. Now, the men we're teaching this are these men from Jerusalem to Judea. And the problem you see is what Paul and Barnabas come up with. It says they have no small dissension and debate with them. You know what that means? That means it was someone getting really mad. And there may have been even a little bit of forceful, maybe even yelling involved in this. No small dissension that was occurring right there in Antioch and in this movement. And it's starting to go across the board, alright? So what, did, what does the church do? When people are getting angry to the point of saying, if that's how you see it, then so long. What do they do? Well, they send and make an appeal to Jerusalem and say, let's send some representatives. Let's talk about this because this is a situation not just to this church, but across the board, all the nations need to deal with this. And so they bring them together, and it's fascinating as you study how they make this decision. First of all, as we read this, I would present to you that what they were looking at and the question they were asking is, what would be most pleasing to God? Specifically, what would be most pleasing to the Holy Spirit? I, I get this because of how the letter is written to the churches. They say to the churches from Jerusalem, we see what is pleasing to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they lay out the verse. Let me just present to you that one of the questions every church member must ask, and I think that every believer must ask whether you're a member or not. What is most pleasing to God? Not as what is most happy, or what is most comfortable, what is uh, my preference, but what is most pleasing to God? I'm going to tell you, a few years ago, we, you know, we had two services, and we went down to one service. I'm going to let you know that when we were discussing that, I did not want to go to one service. I just think, I was thinking, you know what? We're not going to be able to grow this way. We need to have two services. And, 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 th and that was just where I was at. And we started this discussion with this very, uh, for me, adamant, I don't want to go to one service. 
But then we start, start asking this question. What is most pleasing to God? And when we start asking that question, it, you start to realize where your preferences are versus what God wanted. So I just want to challenge us. That's just one decision. There are many decisions that we often have to deal with. And the question we always need to ask is, what is most pleasing to God? And so, uh, first of all, as Peter starts, he speaks up. Okay, He's the first one to speak up. And he brings out the testimony of God's work. When you're trying to decide what do we do in coming to a conflict, always remember how has God worked in the past. You will find that there is a trajectory of God's working in your life and the working of the church that uh, will plot a course. So ask yourself this question. How has God moved in my life up to this point? You cannot make a good decision unless you're considering how God has dealt with you and to do that individually as a church. And so you see Peter doing that. He says, look, this is how God moved in my life. I didn't ask to go to Cornelius. God sent me to Cornelius. Uh, and when that happened, uh, the Spirit of God came on them. I didn't even want that, but that's what happened. And so he's recounting that, and everyone's realizing, yeah, you know what? God just did this. And, and these men, Cornelius, they were not of the circumcised group. That is just the Spirit of God happened. And then he says... Uh, as we keep on reading, he says, But we believe that we will be saved through, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So when we're trying to make decisions, we want to see the testimony of God's work. But what Peter does here is he takes a core principle of salvation and applies it. He says, well, haven't we always taught, haven't we always understood that we're saved by grace alone? You need to know what the core principles of your salvation is. Who is the identity of Jesus Christ? How is it that salvation comes? It comes by grace or does it come by me doing something? And there's a lot of simple principles that are necessary to salvation and you apply it across the board. All right? And so as we keep on reading, we'll find something else happens. James speaks up. Peter shares. Everyone's quiet. You see that all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. But then James speaks up. Now James, remember, this is not the disciple James. Remember, he was the first one killed. This is most likely the half-brother of Jesus that we talked about last week. You remember? G James is the one with his other brothers and his mother that wanted to seize Jesus because he was crazy. All right? They thought he was crazy. Uh, and so here he is now. He no longer thinks Jesus is great. He worships him. That, that is just one of the best evidences of the resurrection. A half-brother worshiping his brother. How do you get that to happen? That happens when Jesus rises from the dead. Something happens in James' And so here he is. He's in this church now, and he speaks up. And notice what he does. He says, listen, Simon has shared how God did this. And then he starts appealing to Scripture. When we're trying to make decisions, we look at how God has worked, the trajectory of His work. We look at key principles pertaining to our salvation, applying them, and then we look for the affirmation of Scripture. And that's what he does. He actually appeals to Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 12. He says, you know, what we're seeing happening, God talked about this. In the book of Amos. 
this, this is it. And so it's interesting that at this word, at the affirmation of Scripture, the church says, okay, we'll move on with this. And I think that's where we need to be as a church as we think about it. It's good to know the testimony of God, all right, how he has worked. It is, it is good for us to know the principles, but when it's all said and done, Scripture is the directive. So what does that mean? Moms and dads, your quest as parents is what pleases God. Right, Joey? Captain? What pleases God? To do that, you need as parents to be looking back. How has God moved? How has He worked in the life of us and the life of our family? And then, what are the key principles that He has directed us for our family? And then, what Scripture has to say to direct us in the decisions that we make? Okay? Now, so that's how the decisions are made. Let's actually look at the decision itself, the specifics of this decision. He says, uh, uh, he says, therefore, James is speaking, my judgment is this. And we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Alright, that's the motive of the decision. Talk about how the decision is made, the motive of the decision. He says, let's operate in such a way that it is not difficult for those who want to seek God. Now that's an important motive. Now, circumcision, would we all agree, that would make it difficult for those who are seeking God to seek God. It was an unnecessary barrier. Now, uh, as we think about this, circumcision, up to that point, was a sign of the law. In fact, Moses was almost killed by God because he did not have his son circumcised. All right? So that was a serious thing in the Old Testament. It was not something to be, to be put away lightly. And so what we're talking about is a whole new revolution of how God's people was going to operate. And the motive must be, let's make sure that the Gentiles can turn to God. And let me just challenge you that just like it was in the days of Peter and James, it's often the good things, signs of godliness, that we have in our life, they can actually hurt people to turn to God. Signs of godliness in our life that can hinder people coming to God. Does that happen today? It does happen today. And that's something we have to be careful of because it's often good things. It's never the bad things. These are good things. Sometimes it's how we're involved in ministry. Sometimes we have these, this litmus test. Uh, I, I will never forget one of the, uh, the, the young couples that we came to know uh, that lived in our community and they were coming and, and they were just having a hard time because it's, you know, we're not like the people there. People there are talking about having devotions with their families. Now is that a good thing? Yes, that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. And, but she said, you know, I'm still struggling with whether or not, I, I, how can I keep cussing out my kids? I don't fit there. What do you do with that? Should we all start cussing our kids? No. That's, that's not the solution. All right? All right? So that we, we don't go there. 
All right? Uh, but we have to understand how we talk to the people around us, the folks who come in and, the, and in our community. If we are so uh, caught up in acting a certain way and we focus on that, we, lost, we lose the ability to speak to those who are seeking God. All right? And so that's something we have to be careful of. Uh, one of the things that you always have to be mindful of is that when people are coming here and they are far away from God, do you understand what it is, a miracle it is for them to come to a place like this? At a time like this? Looking like we look? They already, before they walk in the doors, feel like an outsider. And, and that's not fair. They haven't had an opportunity to meet us yet. But they already feel like an outsider before they ever come in. So you know what they are doing? They're looking for reinforcement. All right, I feel like an outsider. What can I look around here to verify how I feel? Isn't that true for most of us when we go somewhere new? That's true for people who are seeking the Lord. And so we have to be very careful about how we present ourselves, not to get so caught up in just the godly things that we lose the heart of those who are turning to God. So, we have our, our questions. We often ask ourselves, this is what a good Christian is. Uh, they, they're involved in ministry. They, they do their devotions. They do their quiet times. They share Christ with people on a consistent basis. They might even adopt or do uh, foster children. They have their tithing. Uh, they do their devotions with their families. Uh, they, they have the perfect family. These are the measure of, of spiritual lives. And becomes the measure of which we evaluate one another. We have to be careful that if we think our church is about that, then we lose what this church is about. This church has been founded by Jesus Christ for the purpose of making disciples of all people. To be a greenhouse for the Great Commission. And for that to happen, they have to be first far from God. And so we have to reach those who are far from God to be able to do that. So, let's look and see what happens there. And I just want to bring out, there's some of the things that we do what we do so that it is not difficult. Are There ought to be some things that we do in our church so that it will not be difficult for people to turn to God who are far from God. You know why we have volunteers? We are pressing for volunteers in our children's ministry. Any questions? Any, any guesses why? It's so that those who have children who wanting to seek the Lord can do so without difficulty. Do you realize that? So when we are ministering in the children's area, in the preschool in the nurseries, it is so that we can reach people. One of the things that we wanted to be organized. We wanted to present somewhat of an organized Sunday morning. Why? Because we want people who are far from God to be able to come in and get the heart of what we're about. And not distracted by whatever, the mess in front of you or the mess around you. And that takes time. It takes a little bit of work on our part to be able to do that. You know, one of the things I appreciate so much of, 
of Sherry Lucas in the choir, uh, and we have um, Monica Masai when she's up when she's here in the choir. You know what I appreciate about them? Uh, they don't look like most of us here. Why is that important? I, it is important to have people up front who are of different skin color, so that many of the people who live in our community, who are far from God, who may be something other than Caucasian, will not have an extra obstacle, obstacle in coming here. That is part of our ability to reach the people around us. You understand how that plays a part? It is with this motive that James echoes right here that we want to make sure that we should not trouble those who are turning to God with things that are unnecessary. Alright? So, back then, it was circumcision. Today, it might be politics. If I asked by a show of hand how many of you are Republican, I would guess 85%. Alright? So much so that we start thinking Christian equals Republican. So, what do we do with the Democrats in our society? Right? The church cannot sound like a Republican convention. It's got to sound like Christ. Because we're not called to just reach Republicans. We're called to reach everybody. And so we cannot let the political aspect... Now, there are more issues. Right? And they have implications from the gospel. And we should be, by and large, on the same page on those moral issues. But it doesn't make it a Republican-Democrat thing. And so we have to have it focused on who the gospel is. The, the very fact that I said that there's probably 85% of you are Republicans there, there's a few of you who feel uncomfortable just with that knowledge. Okay? Here's my commitment to you. Our church is not going to be about Republicans. It must be about Christ. The rest gets sorted out. This is about Christ. What we're about here together. And so, you know, it's not about dress. Most of you look pretty good. You worked hard. <laughs> I worked hard to look good. You know, it's a, a labor's task. But listen, when it gets to the point when someone says, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable coming on Sunday morning because I just don't have those clothes. That's a problem. That's a problem. At that point, we've changed out circumcision for a dress. Now, some people dress because it's their worship and respect for the Lord. And that's good. That's between them and the Lord. And the Lord does things like that. The church doesn't need to do that. The Lord does things like that. So that's one thing that we have to be careful of as we think about that. Uh, address. Sometimes we have our own insider language. All right? Uh, and and we, we can be cliques. Listen, it's not wrong to have cliques. Everybody has cliques. Right? Don't everyone have their close friends? We can't be close friends to everybody. But the difference is in your group of friends that are believers, do you keep an open door to allow others come in? That's the thing that has to happen. 
And our tendency is to get so comfortable that we don't let that happen anymore. Worship music. No, no. Let's talk about music. One of the things we have to ask ourselves, does our music hinder people from coming in? Okay? And I, let me just bring up, there isn't necessarily a worship style that is more godly than others. And I know that's a debatable point. Some of you know, what about that? It is what communicates with the people. And what does it point to? Okay? What is, does it point to a great God who loves us and saved us through Jesus Christ? And does it communicate with the people? Alright? I'm sure there are some great Chinese worship songs. But they don't work here. Right? They, they can be very theological. But they don't connect with us. And so we have to be able to connect. And here's the, here's the challenge. Not just with people who are inside the church, but people who are outside the church. There's something to consider in this as we think about this. So, what do they say? What, what was it that they said, okay, here's, here's the line. This is where we're going to draw the line of who's in church, all right? But it should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, what's been strangled and from blood. Now it seems somewhat kind of random, right? Does it strike you as a little strange? Uh, okay. <laughs> but evidently it was an issue back then. Alright, so the specifics of it, stay from things polluted by idols. So one of the reasons behind this, things polluted by idols, things that have been strangled, things from blood, things from ancient generations, these were very much ceremonial, ritual things that the Jews have done for, well, thousands of years at this point. And so here these uh, Gentiles are coming in, and they're saved by grace through faith. It wasn't by being circumcised. It wasn't by performing dietary, uh, the dietary rules. It wasn't by the Sabbath keeping. It was just through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in them. And then there's someone else that had been sitting there, and, and in their mind, to eat any food that was presented an idol was just a huge sin. And that's how they've grown up. So what they're saying is, okay, Gentiles, you need to understand, this has been our way. You notice how he said this is from, from ancient generations. Moses has had this in every city, those who proclaim it, for he has read every Sabbath uh, in the synagogues across the world, wherever the Jews are. They understand, they know this. And so they're asking the Gentiles, would you treat us with a little love and help us get adjusted? All right? So don't drink anything of blood, which, you know. I evidently tempted to do. Uh, don't eat things that have been strangled. Just help us out with it. And then there's the, the sexual immorality part. This also, of course, is from the Old Testament. Uh, but there, all the, the theologians and those who study Scripture understand that there is a moral law and there is a ritual ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And what you see in the New Testament is the ceremonial ritual law 
basically says it's no more need for it because these were shadows that point to Jesus Christ. You have the reality of Jesus now. Let's, there's no further obligation for the ritual and ceremonial laws. But the moral laws, uh, there is still very much the expectation that this is the holiness character of God. And so why did they pick out the sexual immorality one? Because the sexual immorality one in that culture, in that day and time, was widely accepted as this is normal right behavior to have extra uh, marital uh, adultery and sexual uh, relationships. That was regarded as normal. And so it was a touchstone, a point of major conflict between the Christians of the Roman era and regarding to sexual immorality, he says, because this is a touch point, let's make sure we bring this out. Because this is where the division is felt between societies, between the Christian growing discipleship movement and the society at large. Now, it's often said, all right, Pastor, really, are you going to you go with that? You're going you're gonna to talk about the sexual purity? You're going to talk about how that there should not be incest, they should not... Uh, have adultery, uh, should not have bestiality, should not have homosexuality. All these are often characterized. In fact, anything that is not uh, a sex within marriage is regarded as immoral in the Old Testament. But what about all those other rules? I mean, it looks like you've got more than one fabric on you. Did you know that? They weren't supposed to mix fabrics. You weren't supposed to eat cheese and meat. And I love pizza. You know, that's the hard thing about visiting Israel is they don't have that together. Uh, and, and so they, are you really going to go with that? Listen, we go with what the Bible teaches and what the Bible has taught is that, yes, there was these ceremonial ritual laws, dietary laws. They were there, but you see them in the New Testament. The New Testament affirmed through Jesus as well through Paul and Galatians uh, and here in Acts that these no longer have obligation, but the moral laws still do. And so I'm not being inconsistent. I'm just simply following what the authority of the Bible that your appeal to does say. The thing is, is they've just picked Deuteronomy passages and they haven't read the New Testament that talks about how there is a moral law that's still upheld by Jesus Christ. So yes. Yes. All these, Peter, James, of the early disciples said, we do need to make a difference. So as we consider this, as we're reaching those who are wanting to turn to God, who are far from God, there are some values that you have to hold, and that is the, the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of your life. Mentally, emotionally, your behavior, you're dealing with money, the sexual lives of us, these are governed by God. As we read this, it's been brought out by others how there tends to be a shift in thinking. You see, the problem that I often have is I read this and I want to add something to this. I, I just do. We went camping with the RAs uh, Saturday, Friday night. Uh, came back yesterday evening. And so we were, uh, that was, I've never done that with uh, the boys. And so it is an interesting experience. I'm sure all kinds of stories I'll be telling you in the days to come. Um, but one of the things I was, was wrestling with, you, we were tent camping, you know? So I thought, well, I ought to bring a tent. So I brought a tent. 
Because that's what you do when you go camping, right? That's what you always do when you're going tent camping. You gotta bring a tent. But I also had this hammock someone gave me. I thought, I don't want to do the hammock, too. So I did both. Set up a hammock, and I set up a little tent. So that night, I slept in a hammock, and did pretty good. And of course, you know, I have to get up in the middle of the night, and he's still sleeping. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go in the tent now. And so I went in the tent. And I started looking around. I had the little air pad and stuff, and getting ready to wave my head, and I saw ants. I said, why don't we go to tent camp? Yep, there's ants. <laughs> I don't want to put my head down here. No one's going to crawl on me. Yep. Well, where else am I going to lay down? Huh? Lay down. Fortunately, Ed wakes up and brings light and says, okay, let's go back to him. But I, had, I was thinking about it the next morning. I was like, how to take down the tent and, you know, do all that work of putting it back in the bag and stuffing it. And I was like, hey, why did I bring this tent? I brought this tent because I felt like I just needed to bring a tent. It's a tradition. Just, you know, a tradition. All I needed was a hammock. But I brought this extra stuff, and it wasn't even that great because ants got in it. See, a lot of times we, we have this mentality that, okay, salvation is good, grace of God is good, but this would make it even better. I, you do this on trips. I, I remember when you go to other trips, I, I feel like I can't walk anywhere unless I have a backpack filled with every possible solution for any conceivable thing that happens to me. And I do that. Yeah, some of you do that in life, right? Your trunk's filled with that stuff. Uh, and so we feel like we have to have all this, and we do that with God's grace. He is simply saying to us, Jesus is enough. There is forgiveness here. There is grace of God that's here. But we want to add on to the 10, 15, 20, 30, a, a test that we have to have to be a good Christian. And we're really not comfortable with this idea that there really could be a Democrat and a Republican who are very adamant about their things, and they could be in one church. Yeah. They can be, uh, not just ethnically, but different persuasions because Christ is enough. He is sufficient for these things. So what is our tendency? You see this in this church. You can see this in our church. There's a tendency that this, this decision corrects to drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying the people inside. Churches tend to drift away from a passion to reach outsiders Toward a tendency of pacifying the people who are inside. They were called to reach all nations. But as they were reaching the nations, and they, the Jews were there, they were realizing that the people, the church was looking different than the synagogue that they had grown up in. And so they were teaching other things. And these were core. I mean, this was Jerusalem, of all places. See what happens in our church? We start reaching people. There's a point where a church feels uncomfortable because it's, it's shrunk to a certain mark. So we start trying to oh, we've got to do something different. So we start reaching those people. And then as those people come in and become a core, and they start tithing, they start giving, and helping us feel good about who we are as a church, then we don't want to lose them. We don't want to lose their offerings. We don't want to lose their tithing. We don't want to lose their support. And so uh, instead of thinking about who is on the outside and reaching them, we start thinking about, well, what would meet the approval within the church? You understand how that happens? It happens easily. And we've got to remember what God has called us to do. 
He's called us to make disciples of all nations. So there's this tendency that we have, that this church has, there's a tendency of moving from grace to our walls. Just like they did. Why do we do that? And with that is a tendency to focus on uh, moving away from internal, internal worship of the Lord to external things. Why do we tend to focus on the external things that did you have a quiet time? Did you tithe? Uh, did you behave correctly in external things? I'm going to share with you one simple reason why we focus on the external things as opposed to the internal. Why we focus on the law as opposed to the grace of God. Why we go that way is because simply it's easier. Now, pastor, is it really easier to tithe? Is it really easier to never drink alcohol? Is it really easy to, to never have be involved in drugs? Is it really easy for these things? Well, yes and no. No, that it does require discipline. But it is so much easier to say to yourself, I'm accepted by God because here are the marks. See? I never drank alcohol. I tithe. I mean, it's, it's yes and no, isn't it? You can check it off your to-do list. But what God desires is your heart. And your heart in the worship of the Lord. And, and I found that I can tithe, but not have God as God of my money. Have you found that out? I, I can do the external stepping stones, but not have Jesus as my Savior. I spent a good part of my early years doing that. I knew how to act like Christians because I knew how to talk. I knew how to, I, I would be witnessing, I knew to be at the right spot at the right time. But I knew in my heart that I had rebellion against Jesus as my king. I wanted a church leader, not a king. The externals are easy and involves Christ. See? Look how good I am, God. How can you allow bad things to happen to me when I'm so good? Not about externals. Not about our own law. It's about the grace of God. As a church, we have to keep asking ourselves, and I want you to ask yourself, do you tend... To spend more of your energy on pacifying the Christians are reaching to those who are not believers. Which one demands more of your energy? Do you tend to focus on what everyone says is the right thing to do versus the grace of God? Do you have external checklists or is there a wholehearted surrender of your heart? I think that as a church, as we tend to drift, because individually we tend to drift, do we not? So as a church, when we consider the reaching out to neighborhoods, find those who are far from God, How easier is that as opposed to just doing something comfortable where it's among church people here? Something we must answer 
because we're held accountable to a king who's given us a task. You understand this? So I want to ask us to pray about this, that we are serving the right world, not the Baptist king, not a Republican king, but the God who is seeking all nations, all people to himself. Let's pray.